the Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mysteries of life. This podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. Registration for the Numinous School only happens once a year in June. Find out more directly after the interview. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm connecting with Lori Lambert-Williams. Since 1996, Lori has been a professional controlled remote viewer and is now one of the industry's foremost trainers and educators. Remote viewing is a technique commonly associated with intuition, but actually has military roots, both in the U.S. and Russia. Much research around remote viewing has been funded by the Pentagon and developed by the Stanford Research Institute. I connected with Lori online. She was at home in the mountains of central New Mexico. So Lori, what identities do you lead with? What identities do I lead with? I like to lead with love, number one. And I don't know if that's actually an identity, but it certainly is a frequency. (laughs) So I believe that love is the strongest force in the universe. And so that's what I love to lead with. I like that people can feel from me total non-judgment and encouragement and love. So those are the identities that I try to come across with, kind of an earth angel identity, I guess you could say. Great. I have been uh, following your work and following you. I've been aware of you for a few years um, because I'm so interested in your work in controlled remote viewing. So can you describe what that technique is, define that for listeners, and then describe what that practice looks like? Sure. Yeah. Controlled remote viewing is a structured set of written protocols that one does sitting at a table with a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen. And we actually do just let a free flow of consciousness kind of come out of our mouths out loud. And we write everything down on the paper in certain places and in certain ways based on this protocol that has been created uh, from a study of brain science, really. The way the right brain and left brain work together and what their functions are and subconscious and conscious minds. And the idea behind it, though, is that we can separate true psychic perceptions from just imagination or random thoughts. And so what they found in the studies that have been done and what I found from teaching since 2001, actually, is that it's amazing how intent I can I can decide I want you to look at a certain thing in time and space, a location, an event, an activity, a person a man-made object, I could write down what I want you to do, put it in an envelope, and then just put a number on it and give you that number. And you will describe what's in that envelope perfectly or beautifully, Uh, maybe not always perfectly, but you'll describe it quite well, well enough that it's way beyond chance. And you might even sketch what's in the envelope. And it's just really, really amazing. And one thing that no one's ever been able to figure out is how does the subconscious mind know what's in the envelope or what I want you to go to, you know, where is that connection coming in? Especially if I, if there's no, you know, obvious connection to it in any way, how do you, how do you do that? (laughs) So, so it's a, it's a really, really great technique. And nowadays, of course, in the, the history of it, of course, is that it was used for spying, 
getting military intelligence. Uh, men who stare at goats. If, in, if any people of your George listeners Clooney haven't, movie. hey, yeah, George Clooney movie. In case any, but no one's seen it. Um, and and some people think, you know, of course, the movie was hilarious and it was a parody. But there's actually a lot of truth in that movie, and it was based on a book uh, by John Ronson, who did really thorough interviews with the characters in the movie. Some of them were conglomerations and cha- names were changed and things like that. But but the actual book is quite serious. It's not a, it's not a joke. And, um, and I'm blessed to say that most of those characters in the movie are friends of mine. I, I, you know, I know them and have known them for many, many years since the 1990s. And it's just, uh, it's, it's a really great technique. And nowadays we're using it for a lot of applications that are fascinating. Medical applications, elusive diagnoses, archeological things. Um, we're using it for finding missing people and other uh, law enforcement techniques. Psychologists, I have among my students, psychologists, CEOs of major corporations, uh, number one New York Times bestselling authors, you know, just a, a plethora of people who are using this for wonderful, wonderful reasons nowadays. So it's a very structured, methodical approach. So although we're talking about the subconscious mind and we might use language around intuition, my experience of going through some courses and reading books and that sort of thing is that really it's repetition of very specific protocols. And even, you know, in some cases I would call it almost glyphs. I can't remember what they're called right now, but like certain ways of writing symbols. And and so can you describe like uh, just a little bit slower and in the layman's terms, uh, there's, a, there's an object or a place that is described in an envelope or with coordinates. A person is sitting in a room and what happens that enables them with practice to be able to envision what's in the envelope. And that's what's so funny is we actually discourage people from envisioning what's in the envelope. (laughs) Because normally when we try to envision something, we tend to conjure up an image in our minds, right? And the image is often often coming from the imagination rather than from our subconscious. So what we base this whole idea on is that the subconscious mind is like connected to a big cosmic database in the sky, if you want to look at it that way. And of course, Everyone's entitled to a variety of belief systems, whether they believe, oh, the information's coming from my angels or God or the Akashic records or spirit guides or whatever anybody wants to believe. We, we find that one of the most benign ways of saying it is we're plugged into a big cosmic database in the sky that's got all the information that ever has been or ever will be. So in layman's terms, what we are doing when we're doing this, we're just connecting to whatever it is, whether it's an object or a person or a place or whatever it might be. And we're describing it. So one of our mantras, if you want to call it a mantra, is describe, don't identify. So if I were to put a photograph of something in an envelope and I were to say, Carmen, could you just describe what's in this envelope? And you just let free flow of thought come out. You might say, oh, it's something red, smooth and shiny. And then we open the envelope and if you were to guess and you were to say, I think it's an apple. And then we open the envelope and it's actually a fire engine. You know, you were okay till you came up with the noun. Mm. So the left brain names things. It's an apple. It's a fire engine. The right brain describes things. It's red, smooth, shiny. 
And so we're pulling from both sides of the brain as we're doing this, but we separate those perceptions as they come in and we've set aside the nouns on one side of the paper and the descriptors on the other. And a little while ago, you said something about a glyph that's kind of a symbolic thing. We actually start the whole process after we do, after we set aside our stuff, we have a little process for setting aside things like most meditative things do. Now, this is not a meditation by any means. Uh, in fact, I usually tell my students, open your eyes, because <laughs> they tend to, you know, when they're first coming for the first day of class, everybody thinks they're going to close their eyes and go into a trance. I'm like, nope, open your eyes, keep talking to me, keep writing, keep moving your pen down the page. Um, but the first thing that we teach is actually free on my website, believe it or not, like the, some of the stuff from my first day of class. And it's the study of what we call ideograms. So right. you, were, you were searching for the word. <laughs> the word is ideograms. And really what ideograms are, it's almost like a shorthand for the subconscious. And it kind of comes from the idea of, of that the subconscious mind learns stuff. And we, we, we kind of trade back and forth. Subconscious teaches us things like, oh, every time I think about that guy who so irritates me, I get a pain in my neck. You know, the subconscious can teach us, don't think about that guy. <laughs> At the same time, we teach the subconscious the way to, from, from work to home, for example. So I'm driving from my office to the house, which I drive every day, and I pull in and I go, wow, I don't even remember driving the last few blocks. Why? Because my subconscious knows the way. So my conscious mind was able to check out and, and I joke in class, you know, and start thinking about that, that ne'er do well that my daughter's dating or, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> whatever I get lost in thought about. And the truth is my daughters are all married. So <laughs> anybody, but it's just kind of a joke that people can identify with. You know, you get immersed in thought on something that's really grabbing your attention. Maybe you had an argument or maybe you're excited about an upcoming event or whatever. And you're immersed in thought about that. And you pull into your driveway and go, gee, I don't even remember getting here. It's amazing. How did I make it here alive? Well, my subconscious took over my body and drove me home, essentially, while my conscious mind was out to lunch. And so when we teach the subconscious something, we, these, the guys developing this realized, wow, we could create a language that's a written language for, that we could teach to the subconscious, and then the subconscious could give us that back. For example, uh, with the same idea of the other day, I opened my fridge and I was going to get some butter. And I went to reach into the little butter container and the butter actually fell out and I caught it before I even realized it had fallen. It's like my hand reached out and grabbed it so quick. And I was like, awesome, Lori, good reflexes. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to learn to encourage myself when I do something, celebrate those little wins. right? But anyway, it, you know, and it just kind of really struck me how we do that so instantaneously that our body reacts before the conscious mind has even caught on to what's happening. Mm -hmm. And that's because the subconscious is lightning fast and it controls the body too. So the idea behind ideograms is that we can create a symbol for some basic overall concepts. And actually on, on my website at intuitivespecialist.com, there's a little tab that says free stuff. And if you click on that tab, there's a drop down menu and it's got a whole class on ideograms. It's got a mini class on ideograms. It also has a, a PowerPoint presentation with photos and stuff about ideograms and so everything. I've really all, I've enjoyed all of your resources and, and uh, I've recommended to students. They're really excellent. So I, I <laughs> encourage people who are curious about 
this to go in and check it out, especially yeah. if you're not really clear on what we mean by ideograms. Because when you see it, it's it's very obvious. Oh, that's like a shorthand that you're teaching. Exactly. It even looks like shorthand. Mm -hmm. So you, the idea, though, when you create your ideograms, if you look at my very first ideograms that I did in my very first class, they're hysterically funny. Like I made a whole little stick man for uh, the, the ideogram of some anything that's living or has had life. Um, I made this little person, you know, and there's no way you would draw a stick man on the, in a subconscious state of mind. You know, it's got to be something that's going to flow really easily and be that you could do in a, what, what my mentor, Lynn Buchanan, used to say, a knee-jerk reaction, kind of a spontaneous spasm, if you <laughs> want to say it that way, on the paper. And so, and so you're kind of deciphering the spasm is what you're doing. And, uh, and it's really cool because it's a language. Like if you think about English, language English you think about the alphabet we have 26 letters we have vowels and consonants right and uh, this is where your readers are like oh no if she's gonna get into grammar I'm turning it off okay I promise <laughs> I won't get into grammar but uh, I just want to explain how like at some point someone created a, the letter C and we all know what the letter C looks like and they decided that it could sound like a k or a s right that it would have those sounds and um, and so that combination of the shape of the letter and the sound that it makes, we all understand to be the letter C. And then if you put that with the combination of the letter A and the letter T, then you come up with the word cat and we all know what a cat is, right? So ideograms are like that. They're a combination of shapes and feelings. Instead of shapes and sounds, they're shapes and feelings. We actually assign a texture to each ideogram. Mm -hmm. So a straight line that's hard might be my ideogram for the idea of land. Notice I didn't say just for land. I said the idea of land because how many types of land are we familiar with? You know, we're sandy land, marshy land, hilly land, steep land, shallow land. You know, there's a gazillion types of land. So we're just talking about the concept of land rather than land as a thing. Mm -hmm. um, and the same thing with water, you know, water, it's, it's, it can be a liquid, it can be a gas, it can be, uh, it can be snow, ice, steam, vapor, uh, or the ocean. You know? so, so when we're thinking about water, we're actually thinking of it as a concept rather than a thing. And so if you get an ideogram of water, which for me would be a wavy line that feels soft, if that, and the thing is, these are coming out spontaneously. So when they come out, you do the squiggle and then you kind of analyze the squiggle through a process that we call the IAB process. Um, once you do this little process that we do, you kind of analyze the squiggle and then you come up with your wild ass guess or the wag. And that's when you kind of say, I think that's my ideogram for water connected to land or man-made above water or whatever. You know, and eventually you get to where you can get a ton of information from your ideograms, especially when they're combined with each other. Um, I had a young man who came to see me and he wanted to talk to me about something and I asked him to wait a minute and I wrote his name down really fast and just did a quick squiggle. And then I analyzed it and I looked at him and I said, are you going to be getting on a boat anytime soon and crossing the ocean? And he said, yeah, that's why I came to see you because I applied at Carnival Cruise Lines like six months ago and they just called me today and asked me if I would uh, go train and then fly to London and get on a ship. And so, and so, you know, it's amazing how ideograms can communicate fascinating information to you. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're really a magical language that kind of open you up to the target. And it's not necessarily to tell you what the target is, but to maybe convey to you that there is 
let's, for example, a land water interface with a man-made nearby or on top and, uh, and some, some biologicals, which is anything that's living or has had life. And then when you go into phase two of the process, that's phase one of the remote viewing process. And when you go into phase two, that's when you start describing it. And I joke with my students, now we're gonna let the horses out of the barn and you really get to jump in to describing, but then you move to those things that you came up with in phase one. I'm gonna move to the landiness of the target and describe it. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna move to the wateriness of the target. So you might think automatically I'm moving to an ocean, but it might turn out to be the wine in someone's glass or it might turn out to be snow or ice or, you know, we don't know because it's just the idea of water. Okay. And, uh, you know, and so then you, as you explore it and as, and, and I'm, I'm actually one of the few teachers, I think there's just a handful of us right now teaching this in the world, uh, maybe three people that are actually teaching it the way that it was created in the military. Uh, but I'm, I'm one of the few that teach beyond the advanced levels. And now we have students that are doing things that way surpass what was ever done in the military unit. Um, of course, we stand on their shoulders and there's the whole concept of morphic resonance. I, I, maybe a lot of your listeners have never heard of that, but it's, it's kind of the idea that the more people that learn something, the easier it becomes to learn because we're all connected on a level you know, that we don't necessarily understand on a level of consciousness. I, I get excited about this, even though I've been doing this since 1996. I get so excited when I'm teaching and my students are like, you are so enthusiastic that it's just contagious, you know, but it's because why do I keep getting excited? Because consciousness is the new frontier. You know, that's what's really exciting is that it's the one thing that we still have yet to explore. I mean, we are just, just barely nicking the surface of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some who believe that there is spacecraft that is controlled through consciousness entirely. And now technology is just beginning to look at that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, there, there are, if you ever have read the book by Michael Crichton, uh, Time, is it Timeline? I believe it's Timeline. There's a prologue or a preface to it that a lot of people skip the preface of it because they want to dive into the book. I read every line of every book from the acknowledgements, you know, to the very end. But, um, but in this, the, when I first, somebody told me, you got to read this book. And so I picked up Timeline and as I was reading this preface, I went, oh my gosh, Michael Crichton is a remote viewer. I just mm. knew that instantly. And then I found out later that indeed he was, that he worked with um, Stefan Schwartz on a, a really exciting project that they did where they went out into the ocean and they had a group of remote viewers and the remote viewers um, ended up finding like I think over 200 submerged ships that had mm. sunken and become completely submerged and by, you know, like silt and things. So mm -hmm. they couldn't be found just with ordinary sonar and the remote viewers found the locations. Mm. Um, and uh, it's really very exciting. So I have a question. Uh, most people, I think, who are um, coming across remote viewing are probably somehow connected up with, I would say, we could broadly describe it as new age thought or intuitive studies or spiritual development or something like that. There's of course the folks who are a little bit more um, linear or clinical who are coming through um, the espionage and the Pentagon files and that sort of thing, who are more into that um, um, intelligence counterintelligence kind of world. But there's probably a lot more people that come across 
controlled remote viewing, I would think, because they have some kind of connection with the New Age movement. So I would imagine a number of your clients and students are familiar with the notion of clairs, and they expect that you need to be quite clairvoyant to do controlled remote viewing, just based on the name. But what you're describing sounds like more clairsentience or claircognizance. So, you know, and, and when you're describing the collective um, you know, the, the database in the sky. It, I would imagine many people are making the leap to the collective unconscious and, and more Jungian notions of the subconscious mind. So how do you square folks up when they've like come to you and found you through those pathways and you're saying, no, this is a, a sort of a different framework that we're using. How do you, how do you um, explain to them a bridge between their notion of clairsentience or claircognizance and what you're you're doing? Uh, Carmen, that's a really great question. First of all, I have to preface this with saying that I believe that that each teacher draws a certain type of students to him or her. I've noticed that by working closely with Paul Smith and Lynn Buchanan and uh, you know a lot of these different guys of Joe McMonagall. Um, and I noticed that my students are kind of of a different ilk. I tend to, as I mentioned, I've had the honor of teaching uh, CEOs of major corporations. Um, I've, I've taught number one New York Times bestseller, bestselling authors, and, and I have a number of physicians among my students and scientists and archaeologists. So how come these people are coming to me? Are they from the new age? Not at all. Most of my students actually would not know what a Claire was. Um, they mm. wouldn't, they might not recognize a lot of the terms you just used. Mm. Uh, and may, mo many of them have never studied Jung, you know, or know anything about Jungian therapy, except my psychologist students. But, mm. <laughs> um, but so interestingly, um, very, you know, I have, I would think that if I had to determine a ratio between those who come to me from a kind of a psychic uh, new age realm and those who are more of the professional entrepreneur, professional corporate heads or whatever you want to call them, or even artists and scientists, I would say it's about maybe 80, 20, hmm. uh, with 20, 20 being the new age people and 80 being the other types. I guess that makes sense because controlled remote viewing as per the name implies it's, it's very rigorous in methodology, which may it's, not yeah. appeal to people who are used to being in a bit more of a trance like shamanic space. Exactly. You have hit the nail on the head for someone who is really used to just close your eyes and tell me what you see kind of a thing the the structure or people who are really strongly right-brained the structure of crv can be really rigorous it's like a martial art you know so if you're if you're learning karate and you want to be a black belt you've got to you know wipe on wipe off continuously just if you want to become a concert pianist you start with scales and you have to practice those repeatedly and that can be really tedious for the more free-spirited among us right and so but the ones the 20 percent that i do have that come from that school of thought i i have uh, actually well-known psychics and mediums who have taken my course i have one who has had two tv shows of her own her name is pam coronado she's had several television shows she's already she was very well known before she ever took a controlled remote viewing class and so she ended up taking basic intermediate and advanced twice each so i asked her and i said pam why would you take these classes when you were already famous you were already using your psychic ability what, why did you take these courses? And she said, oh my gosh, CRV has increased 
my intuitive abilities 400%. And it's also taught me that I can do it anywhere, anytime, under any conditions. I used to think everything had to be perfect and I had to meditate first and I had to do this and that, you know, have, you know, hold your tongue just right, as they say. And she said, I found out that none of that's true. And it made me so much more versatile. And of course, that's, some, that's one of the things I harp on with my students. I probably very differently from other teachers in that I, I don't want to create any prima donnas. I always say, you've got to be versatile. You've got to be, uh, you know, really adaptable. You've got to be able to do this on the fly, you know, in any, under any conditions. Um, and, you know, can't be like, well, I can do this, but I can't do that, you know, that sort of thing. So when I get people who come in and they are really, really right-brained and very, very psychic, and they, they, the biggest challenge for them is not using nouns. Mm. So, you know, because in a lot of schools of psychic stuff, um, and this wasn't a challenge for Pam, she got it right off the bat, but I do have others that have really struggled and they're like, but Lori, why can't I just say it's this or it's that? Um, and Pam actually answered that one day. She said um, she was working on a missing person case and they, they were, oh, I think they knew, I think they had found the body. But anyway, she's talking to the police and she's like, oh my gosh, he stabbed her to death. And the policeman's like, no, he didn't. And she's like, yes, yes, because I see him raising his hand up and down, you know, as if in a stabbing motion. And he said, no, he was beating her to death with a baseball bat. And so, um, and so she saw the arm going up and down. And she, she immediately attached a knife to it, which is the tendency. Our, our helpful left brain wants to enhance everything. I can tell you, I can do it, I can help. But the left brain's really not psychic at all. <laughs> so it starts interjecting things that are not accurate. So she, was, uh, she, she realized quickly that it's that, those nouns that'll get you in trouble every time. You know? mm -hmm. so, um, so I'll have a student who'll come in and they'll be like, but why can't I just say it's a blank? And, uh, you know, and all of it, because often that word blank will be incorrect. Whereas if you just describe what's happening, uh, then you've completely, you know, you've completely described it accurately. So, uh, for example, if I'm working on a missing person case, let's say there's a missing child and that child, um, like I, I worked on a missing person case that happened, I think it was based out of a place called Pocahontas, Arkansas. And I had never, at that point at the time, this was many, many years ago, I had never even been to Arkansas, I don't think, much less Pocahontas. So, uh, so I knew nothing about Pocahontas, Arkansas. And, and I was completely blind to the target. I didn't even know what I was working on. And so I started this session and I start describing everything. And uh, anyway, the information got sent to the investigative, the head investigative officer and immediately he contacts me directly and he's super excited and he's like oh my gosh you know he said i put this out on the internet and i i put it out there you know and i got a gazillion responses from people who claim to be psychic and there wasn't one iota of information that was accurate he said then you send this to me and you tell me you're not psychic <laughs> that you're not a psychic that you are using some kind of a scientific technique and you totally describe these people's backyard where the little girl was taken from. You describe this, you describe that. And he, he was very, very excited by what I had described. But the thing is, if I had named those things instead of describing them, mm -hmm. I probably would have been way off because I would have assumed that these certain things were whatever, like Pam assuming the guy was stabbing his wife to death. Right. Um, you know, we make assumptions. And the great thing about CRV is it becomes an amazing self-discovery tool because you start learning what all your labels are. <laughs> yeah, what all your biases. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you really do. So, 
You have a clientele that is uh, very left brain and it sounds like very high performance people in many ways. And also who um, may feel a lot of pressure uh, to conform to social norms or have an outward appearance of having themselves together and that sort of thing. Um, they're not as sort of unburdened by social expectations as the artist or the psychic, right? Yeah. And so I'm curious, how is that uh, for you when you were becoming expert in this work? Uh, how was it for you to pursue it as a business and as a vocation? Um, how much pressure is it for you to uh, sort of legitimize this work and like really focus on the, the science of it, but also recognize that and eh, probably sometimes you bump up against the numinous and the mysterious and the inexplicable. I do, I do. It's been a journey, Carmen. It's really been a journey for me because, and, and I like to share how, how this progression took place because somebody listening is, is going to identify with some part of what I say. Every single listener is going to go, oh, that, I, I can identify with that part because I have gone from A to Z in my, in my growth. So I was a missionary, a Christian missionary, and I was in a group that nowadays is pretty much considered to be a cult. At the time, of course, I didn't think it was a cult. Um, and I had a lot of great experiences that I drew from that. And uh, I was 20 years from the time I was 14 until I was 34, I was in this group. And uh, we were fundamentalist Christians, you know, and, and, um, and I traveled around the world. I learned to speak Spanish fluently and had all these great experiences. But I always had, from the time I was little, I always had these spontaneous, weird psychic experiences, precognitive dreams or seeing ghosts or suddenly knowing something was going to happen and it did or whatever. And so I didn't really think much about these things. I thought everybody had these things. I didn't think I was any different from anybody else. Um, and so then I come back to the United States, go through this huge adjustment of being back in the States after being out of the States for a number of years. And um, so I come back, my kids didn't know what an escalator was or a gumball machine, or they'd never seen a pop top can, you know, just hilarious things of adjusting to the United States. So we come back and we're, we're total weirdos. <laughs> we're trying to trying to figure this out. And I decided, hey, I'm back in the States. I'm not a missionary anymore. I called the wrong number. I got a job as a social worker with the Texas Department of Human Services. So wow, I, that's, I uh, wow, Texas. Texas. I know. I am How not did from that Texas. happen? I am not from Texas. What happened was I have a sister that I'm really close to. I, I have two sisters and they're, I'm close to both of them, but I was super, super close to this sister and she had moved to Amarillo, Texas a, few, a couple of years before. And so we land in the States kind of unexpectedly because we'd been living in Chile and they had the plebiscite and they ousted Pinochet. And suddenly they, this, this really, really right-wing Catholic, uh, government took over and they put anybody who wasn't Catholic got put on a blacklist. And so suddenly our lives were in danger and we found ourselves very quickly back in the US. We didn't get kicked out of the country. We just, you know, fled kind of because we were like, uh oh, things are getting a little dicey. So we found ourselves back in the US and we're in Miami going, where do we go? What do we do? And I, at the time I was married to this Hawaiian man. Uh, we had been, we, we were married for 24 years and we had seven kids together. <laughs> and um, and he was like, well, I can't go back to Hawaii because uh, he had kind of a history with drugs in Hawaii, you know, when he was young. 
he, he'd gotten into this missionary group when he was 16. So it wasn't very long and it happened when he was very young, but he still just didn't feel like it would be good for his spiritual health to go back to Hawaii. Then we uh, were like, well, I don't want to go back to where my parents live, you know? <laughs> and so, so we ended up, um, my sister calls and she said, come to Amarillo, Texas. They have a great homeschooling movement here and it's, it's big skies, lots of tumbleweeds, but you know, really warm, friendly people. And we thought, okay. And she's like, you can stay with me till you find a place. And she just kind of opened the door to us. So we ended up in Amarillo and, uh, and we stayed in Amarillo just till a year and a half ago. So we were in Amarillo a long time. Um, but anyway, so we moved to Amarillo, Texas of all places. And I thought Texas was like the last place on earth I wanted to be. And Amarillo was so good to us. It was like everything fell into place. Like I said, I called the wrong number and got this amazing job. And, and so for five years, I worked for the Texas Department of Human Services. And, um, and when I, right around 1996, I got a job as the head of a refugee resettlement program where we were actually resettling refugees with contracts that we had with the federal government and the state government. And so it was like just my perfect cup of tea because I loved working with people from other countries and learning new languages and expanding my mind. And it was just a, an amazing experience. And I also was so impressed with the resilience of the refugees because they had been through, they'd seen family members tortured and dismembered and killed and had their homes burned down and were forced to walk for hundreds of miles and giving birth on the road. And I mean, horrible, horrible experiences, you know, rape and pillage and plunder. And, and yet they were so resilient and they, they were amazing. And their children, you know, would end up uh, winning awards and becoming like valedictorians when they had come from almost no education to suddenly graduating from high school in a space of like three years. And I just could not believe these people. They were like superhuman. Um, and they really encouraged me to, to be much more resilient in my own life um, and take, you know, take things with more strength of, of character. So uh, 10 years I worked for them, but at the same year that I started that job, I also met one of the a guy who had been the psychologist, the head psychologist of the Stargate remote viewing program. And uh, the, the whole thing was a very psychic experience. And I don't, I don't know, just to tell you briefly what happened, I was asked in my new job to go to Denver, Colorado to attend a, a conference on post-traumatic stress disorder in refugees. So I get there and I'm brand new in the job. And uh, at the same time, I was reading a book by a doctor who had been doing a 20-year study on children who had had near-death experiences and, and all the things Is he was that Dr. Ian Stevenson? No, it, was, okay. uh, it wasn't. It was, it was someone else. Sorry, he, I mentioned him because he was a great Canadian. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I think so anyway. And he did reincarnation studies in children in India over several uh, years. Yeah, so, interrupt, carry yeah, on. Yeah, this wasn't reincarnation, though. It was really just kind of studying kids who had actually had a clinical near-death experience and seeing how that changed their lives over 20 years of following them through 20 years, along with a control group of kids who had never had anything. And, and, and seeing the difference. And what he found was that kids who had had near-death experiences tended to have much higher degrees of verifiable psychic experiences. Mm -hmm. And as I was reading the book, I suddenly remembered that my mother had told me that when I was a baby, I actually died and they had to revive me. And uh, I, to this day, they're not exactly sure what happened. They don't know if one of my sisters tried to kill me by stuffing a piece of paper in my mouth and choking me to death. Or... <laughs> or <laughs> 
she's much less homicidal now. <laughs> uh, whether it was that or whether it was um, that I had a febrile seizure, they're not sure exactly mm. what happened. But she, she said, you know, one minute you were flopping around on the floor like a fish and the next minute you had stopped breathing, you had turned blue, your eyes were fixed and glassy, you weren't breathing. You know, so I have no recollection of this, of course, because she thinks I was like two, maybe a little less than two when this mm. happened. So I don't remember it, but, um, but I, I did fit all the things he talked about for children who had clinically died and been revived, um, had, who had had near-death experiences. And, and when I read the thing about the high, higher degree of psychic uh, experiences, verifiable, he said a verifiable experience is when you have a, a psychic experience that someone else witnesses as well. Or, or knows about, you know, so like, let's say you have a dream and you say, hey, Carmen, I had this dream last night and I tell you the dream. And then the next day, what I dreamt happens mm -hmm. and you know it too, because I told it to you before it happened. That makes it a verifiable experience. And mm -hmm. so when he said the average that the normal thing, a person who's just normal might have one of those per lifetime. And I went, oh my God. I must not be normal. I didn't realize it until that moment. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so then um, that day I went to the conference and there was this man who was speaking that was just captivating. And he was a psychologist and he, whatever he shared really captivated me. And then that night I dreamt and I found out that he had just retired from the U.S. military as a colonel. So that night I dreamt that I was asking him if he knew a colonel I had just met like three days earlier in Amarillo. I had never met a colonel in my life and then suddenly in one week I met two colonels. Hmm. So I, the next morning I got to this thing. I was there early and he was there. And we were just standing there waiting for them to open the uh, ballroom doors. And it was just the two of us. He's a total stranger. And I said, uh, I had a dream about you last night. <laughs> now, Carmen, I'm going to tell you, my mom told me, if you want a man to remember you, you tell him you had a dream about it. <laughs> and, <laughs> so anyway, uh, he said, really, what did you dream? So I told him about the dream. And he asked me what branch of the military this colonel had been in. And I said, I think he might have been military intelligence. And he said, oh, I was in military intelligence. And just as he said that to me, the cover of the new book that had just come out was on the new arrival shelf by Dave Morehouse, Psychic Warrior, flashed in my mind. And I was like, okay, I, I see this book. And I just said to him, I blurted out without thinking, I said, have you seen the new book? He's like, what new book? And I said, it's turquoise and black, and it has something to do with psychics in the military. He goes, are you talking about Psychic Warrior by David Morehouse? And I said, yes. And he said, I can't believe you're asking me about that book because I was the main psychologist for that program. Hmm. And, uh, and I was like, really? And then he was really interested in me. He like starts hmm. leaning into my space and asking me a bunch of questions. Are you uh, naturally, do you have, have photographic memory for numbers? Do you tend to remember maps easily? Are you artistic? And he's just asking me, he's firing these questions. And I'm having visions of men in black coming and kidnapping me, <laughs> you know? <laughs> I tended to be a little overly dramatic back at that stage of life. And I just, I'm like backing away from him. <laughs> but uh, we ended up actually having a really interesting conversation. And he told me, when you go home, go on the internet, which was kind of new in 1996. Mm -hmm. He's like, go on the internet and look up remote viewing. So I did. I got back home and I looked it up. And I, the first thing that popped up was Lynn Buchanan's webpage. And it said, what is CRV? And I read it and I went, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for, a way to reconcile my belief systems with all these experiences in my life. Because I'd come from this really religious background. So um, anyway, so the, the whole journey then went from a religious, you know, pretty staunch Christian background. And then as I started out in this 
in this journey with controlled remote viewing, it became a very safe platform for me. I thought this is scientific, so it's okay. And the way Lynn explained it, and of course Lynn has a background as being raised as a Baptist and then becoming a Methodist minister prior to going into the military and having, uh, you know, becoming part of the, the remote viewing unit. So he was the perfect teacher for me because he really was kind, he was patient, he was ethical, he had a lot of integrity and uh, and and patient. I have to say patient again, <laughs> because he was very patient with me because I tended to be actually pretty far right-brained. I didn't realize it at the time, but I did have trouble grasping the structure. Uh, not as much trouble as some people I've seen have, but I did have some trouble in that. It was just hard, you know, hard to remember where to put things. And even years later, I was putting things on the wrong side of the page and I had to really correct that. So mm -hmm. the, I, I had to develop my left brain skills a little more. Uh, but anyway, so that journey was a really long journey, and it took a long time for me to let go of these religious ideas that this could be wrong, it could be sinful, or anything like that. Let that go. I dropped a lot of fears. I was able to overcome a lot of fears and fear of heights also through this, and uh, just get over a lot of my stuff in order to bring me to where I am now. You know, mm -hmm. I don't know if I answered your question and all that. I hope I, I well, it was <laughs> fascinating. I don't remember the question anymore. I'm still like, wow, so you're a cult survivor who accidentally gets a job in social work. This is fascinating <laughs> to me. Anyway, um, so I, I'm, I would say as a person who has, you know, taken some courses and um, every year, or every couple of years, I'm like kind of tootling around the internet, Googling like, so what's up with remote viewing and who's around and who's teaching stuff and what's going on? Uh, there's a lot of men, as, as there are like many industries dominated by men, especially one that's so closely associated with um, military and military lore, very few uh, women leaders. And then there's you <laughs> as a woman leader. And so I am curious, do you feel respected by your peers in the industry? Do you feel uh, that there that it would be any different or would there be any benefit if there were more uh, uh, women with more platform in this industry? Do you think it would be more accessible to more people? Yes, 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 and yes. I, um, I now feel respected, but I, it's because of longevity. You know, if, if you, you know, the name of the game is to stay in the game till you win the game. <laughs> um, and so my tenacity has actually been one of my greatest uh, attributes, I think, um, because I was, have not always been respected in this field. Um, in fact, sometimes I've been extremely disrespected um, by certain people in the field, and it's been a, a very much an uphill climb as a woman, I have to say. Um, and it's only through tenacity and the fact that I have so many students now that I've gained respect from people who probably would prefer rather to not give me respect. <laughs> but they just feel kind of like, I better be nice to her. She has a lot of students that can affect whatever, you know. So, um, and, and I, and I, you know, I always believe in being honest, you know, even though we're on the radio and I don't know who's listening to this, I just have to be honest. That's the truth. Um, it's been an uphill climb. I haven't always gotten the respect that I would, uh, would have liked to have had. At the same time, I think we all experience exactly what we need to experience. We've come here to learn on earth. You know, I really believe that this is a big school for us. So I think that I've gotten exactly what I needed to develop my character and to make me stronger 
Um, and the times that I have been disrespected have been helpful to me, uh, mainly because, you know, all of us want to be humble, but no one wants to be humiliated. And sometimes, sometimes humiliation is the only way we learn to be humble. <laughs> and so I have a husband who is like the greatest guy on earth, and he's just super humble. Humility is just part of his nature. Um, he's just naturally humble. And next to him, I mean, I'm like super ego. And we laugh about, we, we laugh about my ego just because I'm always like, down, boy, down, you know? <laughs> and, and so uh, um, it's just kind of funny. You know, we all have our foibles. So whenever my ire gets up about something or I get ruffled, I think, well, you know, my ego is offended, but my subconscious is fine. You know, <laughs> my self knows that this is all you know, none of this is really real. So, <laughs> so you and your husband also live a very interesting life present day. You know, the adventures haven't ended. You, you uh, relocated and committed heavily to a low impact lifestyle through earthship living. So can you explain to listeners who've never heard of this, what is an earthship? An earthship is a fascinating home that's made out of garbage. It was designed and created by a man named Michael Reynolds about 47 years ago when he graduated from architectural school and realized that buildings needed to be more functional. They needed to be more earth friendly and they needed to care for their occupants because current buildings, you know, if we lose electricity, a lot of, a lot of people would die in their apartments if it got too hot or too cold. Whereas an earthship will keep you temperate year round with no external means of air conditioning or heating. So um, how are they built? The, the One of the main things that airships use are tires filled with earth and set up like bricks in the back walls, the north facing walls. And uh, they're covered with earth, so you, they don't off gas. They're old tires too, which have already off gassed. But um, filling them with earth allows them to create what we call thermal mass. And so when they're in the walls and they're filled with earth um, and the front walls that are south facing are all glass. So you have these beautiful views and the sun comes in in the winter, warms the back walls that have the tires inside them. Those tires act like batteries retaining that warmth. And then at night, as it starts to cool down outside, the, ba the batteries, the, the earthship tires release that heat back into the room and keep the room amazingly warm. So our house is about 1400 square feet. It's, a, it's technically a two bedroom, one bath home um, with a sizable living dining kitchen area that's all open. And, uh, and so it really, it keeps things beautifully warm. When it was minus five outside our house uh, with no fire, no nothing, the coldest it, came, it got in the main room was one morning we got up, it was like 59 degrees in there. Mm. And that's the coldest it's, I've ever seen it. Um, it's generally runs about 65 in the winter. Um, our bedroom never went below 65, even mm. with the, uh, even, you know, in the coldest, coldest time with no, no, no heating, mm. nothing. And we have skylights in our ceiling. We have three skylights in our bedroom. So, um, and that's the coldest it got was 65 degrees. And that was with minus five temperatures and high winds outside. Now, uh, in the summertime, sometimes, occasionally, it's, the average temperature where I live is about 80 uh, in the summertime, but it, so it always drops down in the 60s at night, but um, and every now and then we'll have like a 100 degree day. So I was really curious when we first moved in, because we moved in in April of 2017. So I was curious, like, how hot will it get in this house? 
no, mm -hmm. no air conditioning because I hate heat. I can handle cold much easier than I can handle heat. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, is this going to get like unbearably hot? Um, the main rooms, and we're still learning to control the, like you can open things and close things mm -hmm. to, and you know, like close shades and open vents and things to keep things really cool. Because at night it always gets cool. And we're in the mountains, we're up at 6,700 feet. So it gets cool in the mountains. And, and so we can actually keep the house quite temperate and comfortable in the seventies throughout the summer. Um, but it took us a bit to learn that. So before we learned that, the hottest it got in the house was 85 degrees, which is pretty warm. Mm -hmm. you know, if you want to be comfortable. But our bedroom, again, our bedroom is more protected and it's more under the berm. So our bedroom never got warmer than 76, even when we were mismanaging the, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> mismanaging the use of the windows and the skylights and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's, that's, so and we all, another thing that's cool about our ships, uh, we're completely off grid and we get our electricity from solar panels and batteries. Um, and so they, we have special batteries that are made for off-grid living. When we first moved in, we had golf cart batteries and old, old solar panels. So we've replaced those now. And, um, and we have a 65-inch flat screen TV. We can watch Netflix and, and Hulu and Amazon Prime and anything we want to watch um, on there. Although, you know, we, we don't watch a lot of TV. Or, but if we want to, you know, if we're in the mood for a movie, we've got this gorgeous TV that we brought with us from our former life where we had a seven bedroom, four bathroom, three living room mansion. Right. Um, and so we, we moved out of that. My husband jokes, I, I took you from the lap of luxury and moved you into a mud hut. <laughs> so why was this lifestyle change so important to you? I'm particularly curious. I mean, you know, uh, being a rather collapse aware person myself, I can imagine philosophically or politically why that is. But I'm curious from an intuitive perspective, what have you seen or sensed? What do you believe the world will be like 100 years from now that makes this choice important to you? That is a, a good question. And a lot of people ask me that. They're like, my students especially, did, did you see something? Do we need to move? Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Jim and I, Jim's 67. I'm 61. So moving, making this move was not wise in the sense of, is this a good way to age out, you know, in, a, in, you know, in an earth-built house with flagstone floors? Um, you know, maybe some people think, I think my kids might think I have a screw loose for doing that. And, but they've all actually all really enjoyed coming out and staying with us. We have three Earthships, so we do have two guest homes. Uh, but the, the thing about the, um, about the philosophy behind it is that we have nine children between us and 20 grandkids. And I want a future for the grandchildren of my grandchildren. But I don't see that unless we make some major changes. I, I don't see that happening. I don't see a future for the grand, I don't even know that my grandchildren could have grandchildren at this point. The way the, uh, the oceans are warming, glaciers are melting, volcanoes are erupting. You know, I, when I teach CRB, I teach that the body is the link between the conscious and subconscious mind. And this morning I was meditating and what came to me was that the earth is kind of analogous to our bodies. And if the earth is analogous to our bodies and if the earth had a subconscious mind, you know how, like, for example, you might get stressed and break out with acne because your, your subconscious is expressing itself through your body. And the, by the same token, 
in uh, if you if you think of the earth like a body, if it had a subconscious mind, the earth doesn't break out in acne. It it has volcanoes erupting. It has storms. It has hot flashes and cold flashes and things like that. And all of these are the earth's attempt to communicate with us. I firmly believe that from an intuitive level. When do you remember when that horrible oil leak happened in the Gulf and everybody mm -hmm. was they were try, desperately trying to figure out how to stop it? Deepwater um, Horizon. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it was horrible. I remember one night getting in bed and I just felt like my body was responding to the earth's agony and I got in bed and I heard this little inner voice say, the earth is, is bleeding. It's like the earth mother is bleeding. And uh, all this fracking and things, you know, just, uh, it just breaks my heart. The people of Flint, Michigan, for example, um, the earthship folks have gone to try to help the people in Flint, Michigan, teach them uh, about how to build homes and get clean water from rain. Because our homes, uh, my, our homes too, all the earthships collect rainwater uh, as, as a source of water. And, um, and so, and, and the cool thing too is you can grow food in them along the front windows. So you can have a house that provides you with water, warmth in the winter, cool in the summer, and food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what better home could you have than that uh, in, a, in a situation where if the earth suddenly, if something happens to where we lose electricity, and because of these storms, more and more people are finding themselves without power for days in the winter or in the heat of summer, and their buildings are not protecting them. Um, so to me, I, I felt when I first heard about Earthships, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a solution. This is an amazing solution. So we, my husband and I became fascinated. We started binge watching. We don't do anything halfway. We were started binge watching YouTube videos. And we also have a, a blessed way of manifesting what we want. So one day we were talking and I couldn't stop. I just couldn't stop watching these YouTube videos. And I said, Jim, we we need a big piece of land with a bunch of earthships on it. I don't have the strength to build my own earthship at this age, but if we could find a piece of land that had several earthships, because we have a lot of kids and we have students. And I said, so that's what we need. And the very next day I found this property with 80 acres and three earthships already built. And what the, are the chances? I know. Only if you were a really amazing remote viewer. <laughs> <laughs> And so we ended up uh, actually, it was way out of our price range, but we went and visited several times. Actually, Jim was just obsessed. We have to go see this property. So we went several times and uh, after several times we did finally make an offer and it was a much, it was a pretty low ball offer compared to what they were asking. But after about three months of considering our offer, they, they accepted it. Um, the, the bottom line though, and we're surrounded by gorgeous views of mountains. I mean, just breathtaking and sunrises and sunsets are just make you cry they're so beautiful so we we what we gave up in housing and comforts we have received in being living an authentic life in touch with the earth that's so meaningful uh to us and, it, and and it's amazing what you can create when you're filled surrounded by beauty and silence um and uh flagstone floors which at first i didn't care for but now i really love they're very, <laughs> they're very grounding <laughs> okay. so when you think about your grandchildren and the notion that it would be nice that they could imagine having grandchildren. I would imagine also, since you're so sensitively attuned to the earth, that there are times of intense and profound grief and maybe rage that, that come up. How do you deal with ecological grief? Um, it's, it's been something I have really, really struggled with as an empath. 
And I find that my only solace is I wake up before dawn, usually around five in the morning, and I have a, a little uh, alcove with a, a tiny recliner in it that I sit in. The big recliners are too big for me, so I get in these little ones. It's a little tiny plush red recliner, and I cover up with my blankets, and I meditate, um, and then I journal. And I often pull um, cards. I, I don't use tarot cards. I use little cards that have like encouragement things. Car some of the cards are like by psychologists or things like that, self-care cards or oracle cards or whatever you want. I have a huge collection and I choose one of those and I'll just read a card that'll be my message for the day. I'll ask for, for uh, the perfect card for me for the day. Um, and and the lately, the ones that keep coming up are, you're, you're an earth teacher, you're attached to the earth, you need to share about the earth. So that's really funny, because the cards have frequently guided me in some ways. But um, anyway, so when I am dealing with grief and rage, which I do definitely experience, I sit in my chair and I journal. And I did that this morning, this very morning, and I journaled about our grandchildren's grandchildren and how what what what's going to happen and that sort of thing, and I, I my I, my husband read it and said this is a blog you have to publish it, mm -hmm. but um, it's just it's just something that I feel like by getting in touch with the universe I get a bigger picture, and I realize that uh, when I you know when I was coming from that very very strong Christian background, when I first saw a photograph from the Hubble telescope, that gorgeous nebula. And it was so colorful and beautiful. And I was filled with the beauty and the awe of it. And at the same time, I felt deeply disturbed and I didn't know why. I was like, why am I so upset by this nebula? And I realized that, you know, we often have beliefs that we hold that are so subconscious, we're not aware of them. And I realized that the nebula made me aware of my own insignificance. Mm. That, that that cloud was composed of a gazillion stars that were much bigger than our star, than our sun. And, the, and therefore, our planet wasn't even a microscopic speck in that nebula. If, you know, if our planet existed in that nebula, which it didn't. But, you know, if, it were, if you were to put our galaxy into that nebula, we wouldn't even be a microscopic speck. The planet wouldn't be a microscopic speck, much less the people on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I was suddenly filled with a sense of how insignificant we as a species are. And I think prior to that, I had this sense of entitlement, like most humans have. We're the best, we're the biggest, we're the smartest, we're the this, we're the that. We get caught up in all of our daily dramas, you know, of our lives and our careers and trying to make it and whatever. And then you realize we're really, really insignificant and all of our little dramas are really unimportant in the big, big scheme of things. And when I think about that, I realize there is a creator, there is a God. And God is love, and love is a power like gravity, it's a force. And when you realize that, and, and through some of our intuitive work that we've done, we've been told that love is like gravity, and it is the only constant through all dimensions, through all universes, through, you know, just through everything, it's the one constant that exists. So when I realize that, I always have to bring myself back to that, Carmen, mm. when I'm dealing with rage and and dealing with grief, I just bring myself back to that and realize that we are eternal beings and we're part of all that is. So there really is no end. And my grandchildren eventually will be fine, whether, whether they live or die. And when that happens, they're all still fine because we're all eternal. Mm. 
That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your stories, your perspective, your expertise, Lori. And I really have appreciated learning a little bit more about um, the person behind the teacher, the person behind the, the really excellent website that has so many resources. So <laughs> thanks for sharing your expertise, but also of yourself. I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. Wow, what a fascinating and knowledgeable woman. To find out more about uh, Lori's work, to find links to her website, and also to all of the incredible resources that Lori mentioned in this episode, check out the episode show notes on my website, carmenspaniola.com. That's also where to find more information about the Numinous School of Intuition, my online intuition development program. It's a year long. Uh, registration only happens once a year in spring. The price is just $4.95 US for a comprehensive real-time program that includes a printed textbook and a few other surprises. Just click on the courses link in the upper navigation. Now, if you need a payment plan, that's no problem. There's no extra charge or admin fee for that. But you do have to make sure that you get on my newsletter list because payment plans begin in March and they're only offered to my newsletter subscribers. So you'll find the newsletter subscription sign up at the very bottom of my landing page. Now, every show, you know, I like to do a shout out to say thank you for listening. Today, I'd like to thank my listeners in Cameroon. Hey, you two. I don't know who you are, but how wonderful that we're connecting in this way. And But like, why in the world are you interested in what some gal in Western Canada? Anyway, you two should totally hook up. You obviously have very similar interests, and I'm totally charmed and delighted that you're listening. Finally, let's talk about Quest just for a minute. Uh, Ruben and I are leading Quest this year from June 24th to July 6th, 2019. It's a 12-day journey, and in the middle, you'll spend four days and nights fasting solo in the wilderness without a tent. I know, intense, right? It sounds really intense, but not really, actually. I mean, for sure, yeah, the next steps on your spiritual path, they get very real, very quick when you're out there on the mountain. But you'll be very well trained to do so. But you know what? Also, more than anything, Quest With Us is an experience of earned, secure attachment and reacquaintance with the skills of human making and community building and togetherness. So truly the solo is like a tiny part of the larger life-changing experience that is Quest with me and Ruben. And you know, if this isn't your year for Quest, but you'd like a taste of the experience for a fraction of the time and the expense, you might consider joining us for Vestalia, a women's summer solstice celebration happening at our Quest location in the Caribou-Chilcotin Caribou region of BC, June 20th to 23rd. You'll find details about Vestalia under the workshops link on my website, and you can get all the information about Quest uh, under the Quest tab at carmenspaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs>